Just about the only thing I can say in favor of the European Super League is that it's at least an attempt to clarify the situation. It says, between the imperative of money and the imperative of sentiment, money wins. The big clubs, not UEFA or FIFA, are the real power in the sport. Soccer should be an American-style spectator sport oriented toward the modern global TV audience, not traditional local fan bases. Preserving the game's history matters less than catering to the conditions of right now. Don't misread me here. All the criticisms of the big clubs are correct. They are greedy, bullying, self-interested, and perfectly happy to torch many of the attributes that make soccer wonderful if it means a tiny advantage for them. Somewhere there is a parable about a warlord whose rebellion reduced the country to a desert. He didn't care if it was a desert, as long as he got to be king. I'm pretty sure he was a Manchester United fan. On the other hand, I'm an American soccer fan who pays money to watch European club football on television. I am way more excited to watch games when the world's best players are involved, which typically means when the big clubs play each other. Complaining about the Super League makes me feel a little like the guy who's upset about the demise of independent bookstores even though he orders from Amazon 90% of the time. Or the guy who's sad about the struggles of indie bands even though he spent 15 years streaming nothing but Drake albums. Brian Phillips. Hello, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson, and today we are going to talk about football, also known as soccer. I called this episode, Anarchism is the Bundesliga, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Honestly, writing the script, I despaired a few times of making it makes sense. It is so complicated. And look, the the tactics of how the game is played can be very complicated, as can the rules, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the business and competitive structure of American and European football, and the way that the German league in general, and one second division team specifically, FC St. Pauli, have made it more anarchist. This episode is necessary because football in Europe is undergoing some sort of transition. You may have heard about the European Super League. That's what the opening quote from Brian Phillips was about. The European Super League is bad, but it is a symptom of the larger problem, exactly as Brian Phillips writes in that opening quote. What's happening in soccer is the middle class is going away, exactly like William Derezowitz writes about in his book, The Death of the Artist. And everything else, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, whoever, they control all the money, This upsets people, and it prevents people from making a living doing the thing. And yet the average consumer, as Brian Phillips writes about, doesn't really do anything about it. The the Super League was an attempt by the biggest of the European soccer teams to create a Spotify, an Apple, an Amazon of football. It hasn't worked yet. It will eventually work, unless soccer becomes more grassroots, more community-organized, more anarchistic. The Bundesliga didn't participate in the Super League planning because it's got some anarchistic elements in its organization. That's where we are going today, and we're actually going to interview someone who is involved in that anarchistic organization, Julian of the FC St. Pauli Fonladen. But before I get to any of that, I thought I would explain what football is, where it comes from, why it has so many names. It's so confusing. Let's start with the name. Football. 
There's this European snobbery that what Americans think what is called football isn't actually football. The game with the forward pass and the heavy pads and the helmets and all the concussions. And what Americans call soccer is the real football. This isn't true. All of these things are football. They all come from the same game. They just diverged in the late 19th and early 20th century. This game, the Ur football, the original football, the uh, evolutionary pre-football, is uh, really old. We don't know how old. I mean, there's a game that kind of resembles it in China from 3,000 years ago. Who knows? But it's definitely been being played in Europe for more than a thousand years. And here's what football is. There's a bunch of people on the field. There's two teams. They're trying to advance the ball in opposite directions on this roughly rectangular field, and they're doing it fairly violently. The ball is kicked, hence the name football, as it is in American football, but it's also thrown and carried, as it is in association or European football. Right? There's throw-ins. The goalkeeper runs around with the ball and throws it. There's kicking and throwing in both games. It just is a matter of emphasis. Association football, rugby, American football, all of these things have these two teams, the field, advancing the ball, kicking, carrying, throwing. They are all football. And just as a historical note, just for fun, Shakespeare does write about football and especially its violence, because that's the next thing we need to talk about, the association of football and violence. Um, Shakespeare mentions football in a few plays. One of them is in King Lear. So King Lear is just this just blustery, powerful old man who doesn't have any power anymore, but still wants to hang on to his respect. And he strikes this insolent servant, Oswald. And Oswald says, I'll not be struck, Lord, which is this you know huge expression of defiance. Lear can't strike him anymore. And Lear has a uh, loyal ally named Kent, who then trips Oswald and says, nor tripped either, you base football player. Oh, take that, Oswald. You are associated with football, which is a violent sport for lower class people. You got what you deserved. That, that's what football does in Shakespeare. It, it represents violence. And violence is dangerous, which is why football is constantly being banned in European history. Famously, uh, King Edward II in 1314 bans it, but it's been banned tons of times in England and in other countries. Especially it's a big deal in England, because in 1314, or whenever you are, up until like the Napoleonic Wars, the way you beat the fringe is with archery. And the way you have archers is you have lots of young men doing archery all the time. And so if the young men are doing football instead of archery, that's a problem. That's another reason why football gets banned. So it doesn't compete uh, with archery. Eventually, though, it gets changed and football becomes, uh, in the 19th century, in both Britain and the U.S., a sense of how the young men are supposed to be trained for war. Archery isn't important anymore, but leadership and teamwork and violence still are. But if a game is too violent, it doesn't simulate war, it just gets people killed. So the powers that be in both cases try to reform football. And the person who does this in the U.S. is Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt loves masculinity and violence, but not too much on the training ground. Here he is writing a letter to his son. I am delighted to have you play football. I believe in rough manly sports, but I do not believe in them if they degenerate into the sole end of anyone's existence. I don't want to sacrifice standing well in your studies to any over-athleticism. And I need not tell you that character counts for a great deal more than either intellect or body in winning success in life. 
Athletic proficiency is a mighty good servant, and like so many other good servants, a mighty bad master. Did you ever read Pliny's letter to Trajan, in which he speaks of it being advisable to keep the Greeks absorbed in athletics because it distracted their minds from all serious pursuits, including soldiering, and prevented their ever being dangerous to the Romans? I have not a doubt that the British officers in the Boer War had their efficiency partly reduced because they had sacrificed their legitimate duties due to their inordinate and ridiculous love of sports. So actually, it's from the intervention of this man <laughs> that we get American football. In 1906, he calls a conference and decides football needs to be a great sport for young men, but not an all-consuming and all-violent one. That's when the forward pass gets invented. It's to make football less violent. And it takes a while for it to take effect, but it, it starts with Roosevelt in this conference of all of these elite schools. It needs to be violent enough to provide leadership for elite young men, but not so violent that it prevents them from being the kind of young male leaders our country needs. And actually, an almost identical story takes place in England. The SOC in soccer comes from the phrase association football. It's roughly the same period. It's about 50 years before Roosevelt. These leaders of the British schools, the English schools, get together to decide to make football less violent and better suited for leadership. This is a quote um, from David Goldblatt's amazing book, The Ball is Round. Yes, there's rustling. I've got the book in my hand. In November 1863, representatives from 11 old boys clubs in the London area held a meeting at Freemasons Tavern. In a series of meetings over the next two months, attempts were made to generate a single code from the many competing versions of football represented around the table. First, between those that favored a catch-and-run game and those that preferred a dribbling-kicking game. Second, between those who favored hacking, where players deliberately targeted their opponent's shins as a way of stopping them in the tackle, and those who opposed the practice. Mr. Campbell from the Blackheath Club remarked of the plan to dispense with hacking that, you will do away with the courage and pluck of the game, and I will be bound to bring over a lot of Frenchmen who could beat you with a week's practice. Here we see this is me, not Goldblatt, the, the problem. Football needs to be violent enough that we can beat the French, but not so violent that we get injured before we fight the French. But as Ebenezer Morley, the honorary secretary of the group, now referring to themselves as the Football Association, responded, If we have hacking, no one who has arrived at the age of discretion will play at football, and it will be entirely left to schoolboys. Goldblatt goes on to talk about all the various ways that other people... Um, contributed to the creation of this thing called association football. But the key thing for our story is that even though it's kind of a lie how important this meeting was, just like the Roosevelt meeting was part of a, a larger series of things, the basic narrative is football, the sport that Shakespeare knew, was codified into just a throwing game with forward passing, or primarily a throwing game with forward passing, or primarily a kicking game with very limited throwing. It was done for the same reasons, for standardization, for the training of young men. American football, association football, it has the same origin and it has the same idea. Train the young people so they can go beat Napoleon or conquer Africa or whatever it is that they want to do. The uh, enemy changes, but the goal remains the same. Imperialism. Now that we've covered how the game came to be, let's talk a little bit about the structure 
both of European football and of American football. I'm going to start with American football with the NFL. Since the 1960s, the NFL has been one of the dominant cultural forces in America, arguably over the past 20 years, the single dominant cultural force. And its business structure is exactly what you would expect from 21st century America. It is communism for the wealthy. One good way of defining communism comes from Marx, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. What this essentially means is that everyone should do the best they can. Everyone should contribute. Farmers should farm, doctors should doctor, teachers should teach, etc. Maybe someone is much more valuable to society as a physicist than someone else is as a farmer, but they all contribute what they can. And then when it's time to hand out food and shelter, money, whatever, everyone gets the same amount. Now, this is where the American right-winger stands up and says, that would never work. There could never be a system in which you can reward the losers with the same amount of money as the winners. But that's exactly what the NFL does. It's a little more complicated than this because the teams do get different amounts of money from ticket sales and jersey sales and some things like that. But basically, most of the money the NFL gets comes from the TV deal, and they split that evenly. That is straight-up communism. A recorder named Darren Rovell keeps track of this, and here's a quote from him. I can't tell what year this is from because this article has been updated a bunch of times, but here, this, this will give you a good sense. The NFL shared $8.78 billion in national revenue with its 32 teams this past season. That number became clear on Friday when the Green Bay Packers, the league's only public team, reported that its cut of the national revenue was $274.3 million. Each of 32 teams split that amount equally. The national revenue has increased 33% since 2013, factoring for inflation, considering that each team received $187.7 million that year. So that's just communism. Everyone plays. Some teams are terrible. Some are great. Some are watched by everyone. Some are watched by no one, like the Jacksonville Jaguars. From each according to their ability, but then everybody gets the same check. And they say communism wouldn't work in America. Now, you may have noticed this isn't quite from each according to his ability to each according to his needs because the check is the same for everyone. It's not like you get actually rewarded for needing more of what you do. And here, this, this will probably make no sense to you if you are not American. Every year, the worst team in the NFL gets the top draft choice, meaning they get access to the top amateur player in the country. So it actually is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. You were terrible this year, but you get the same amount of money as the best team. And here's the best new player. The money is shared and so is the talent. This is communism, but only for the powerful. Tell me about these amateur players. I can imagine you asking. Why do they get drafted like this? Couldn't they just sell their services to the highest bidder? I mean, the short answer is that under free market principles, of course they could, but that would ruin the whole system. The longer answer is that the NCAA, which is the organization in which the amateur players play, the NFL, the NFL players, and the US government have all gotten together and decided this is fine. It's legal, it's okay. I, I'm not gonna go through the reasoning for you because it doesn't make sense but the NFL and the players decided that the amateur players can't enter the league until they've been out of high school for at least three years, and they have to enter through this draft. And since the union representing the current players signed on, the U.S. government signed off because, hey, this is what the players want. Never mind that lots of people would be players if they were allowed to be players, but they just, they're not players, so their vote doesn't count. I'd, Thank you, legal system. In 2004, there was a player named Maurice Claret who sued because he wanted to be in the NFL, and he was definitely good enough to be in the NFL, and the U.S. courts ruled against him. No, you're not allowed to be a pro player. 
but he had signed an agent, which you're not allowed to be an amateur player if you sign an agent. So Maurice Claret just wasn't allowed to play football at all that year. But that's okay because the National Labor Relations Board said it was legal. I don't know. The final thing you've got to understand about this whole thing is that this communism for a wealthy is a closed shop. It is communism for the 32 owners and to a lesser extent, the current players. And then no one is allowed into it unless those 32 owners say they are allowed into it. It's sharing, but only for the people who are already in the club. The NFL could just decide to have 34 teams, but why would they? They would have to share the money more. There's no way to get promoted into this like you can in European soccer. And this means the owners just keep getting richer. When the Panthers, the Carolina Panthers, which is the team in my state, were allowed uh, into the cartel, their owner paid about $200 million. After some allegations of sexual harassment against him, he had to sell and he sold for about $2.2 billion. I didn't adjust that for inflation, but you, you get the picture. The thing went from worth $200 million to $2 billion and $200 million in about 20 years. That's because you can't make new NFL teams without the permission of the NFL. I mean, someone could start a crosstown team and try and beat them, but that's just not an option because you don't have access to the money or the players. This is communism for the billionaires with Americans paying for it. Now, before I move on from this ridiculously bureaucratic, corporate, unfair communism, to the uh, bureaucratic, corporate, unfair anarchism of European soccer, maybe I should say anarchy, I do want to make the point that there is one really great virtue about the NFL's communistic system. By restricting the spending each team can make and using the draft system to distribute talent, the NFL really does create competition. It is unfair to the entire world besides the NFL, but within the NFL, it's pretty fair. Over the past 10 years, there have been nine different teams that finished with the best record in the NFL. Only the Patriots did it multiple times. It really does mean that there is competition. Communism, in this case, is used to create competition. It's just only internal competition. They refuse to compete with anyone outside of the cartel. Okay, time to switch over to European football. Let's start comparing. I used regular season when I just talked about those 9 out of 10 teams rather than the playoffs for a couple of reasons. For one thing, the playoffs are random. That's what people love about the playoffs. You never know what's going to happen. So if you're doing statistics, you want to use a less random thing. But the other reason is so I can do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. The European League closest to the NFL is the Premier League. Uh, sometimes it's called the English Premier League, but there are also sometimes Welsh teams in it, so I don't know what to call it. We'll just call it the Premier League. That's what they want you to call it. The Premier League, like all the European leagues, doesn't have playoffs, so we can't do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, but we can compare the best record, and we'll do that in a second. First, let me tell you about the structure. The NFL is corporate communist, but the Premier League is oligarchic anarchy. Unlike in the NFL, the competition between the members is real. The losers actually lose. The losers in the NFL get the best new players. The losers in the Premier League get kicked out of the Premier League and replaced with new teams. In this sense, the Premier League structure is much more based on competition in the Adam Smith invisible hand sort of way. Promotion and relegation is what they call it. These teams going up and down is how they promote competition. If your team is a disaster in the NFL, like the Colts were when Peyton Manning was injured, 
they got to pick the very best player from the college ranks. If your team is a disaster in the Premier League, like West Ham was that same year, they got kicked down a level. Now that is competition. But in the actual Premier League, there is not that much competition. Clubs don't share revenue the same way, so the rich teams just get richer and just keep winning. Remember that stat? Nine different teams in the NFL had the best record over the last decade? Only five teams have finished with the best record over the past 10 years, and one team did it half of those years. So of those five teams, two of them are very wealthy old powers owned by billionaires, Manchester United and Liverpool. American billionaires, I should say. One of them is Leicester, or Leicester, as Ted Lasso would say. I still don't know how Leicester won the Premier League. That was really fun. Everyone loved it. That'll never happen again. And the other two teams are Manchester City and Chelsea, which are these two really not very important teams that were both bought by oil gazillionaires and now are two of the best teams in the world. So now the Premier League, and this is the, where the Super League comes from, this is the thing that I despaired of explaining, but I'm going to try. And I need to get to my interview with Julian soon, so I don't want this to be too long. I don't want this to be a 90-minute episode, but oh my god, it could be a 90-episode series. We've got these two competitive problems. First of all, the rich teams keep winning, and they will always keep winning. This is anarchy. There's Goliaths and there's Davids, and the Goliaths just keep stomping the Davids, and there's no anarchism. The Davids cannot organize. It just doesn't work. Except... Manchester City and Chelsea were Davids, and now they are Goliaths. And that's because, unlike the NFL, where you can't become one of the 32 billionaires unless the other 31 billionaires let you in, there's also corporate anarchy. Anyone can buy just some random team in England and turn it into a new Goliath. So the royal family of Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City, and now Manchester City is the best team in England because they just put more money in it. They won the Premier League five times in the past 10 years. The biggest competition is Chelsea, which is owned by a Russian oil oligarch who only has like $13 billion, but it's enough, and he probably has more than that hidden away somewhere. Chelsea and Man City will never be relegated. They'll just spend a billion dollars to get new players. So there's no more promotion and relegation in the Premier League for any of the teams owned by oil magnates. It's, it's really simple. If you have $50 billion, spend a few hundred million on a Premier League team, spend even more than you paid for it on new players, you'll win a championship. People all over the world will watch you on TV because you have great players, then you'll have fans, and you'll never get relegated. And now we have a world in which the only way to be good in the Premier League is to be owned not by a billionaire, but by a super-duper billionaire. So this unimportant team, Newcastle, uh, was just bought by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. So you can go ahead and pencil them in for a couple of Premier League championships in the 2020s. Honestly, for me as a podcaster, despite how difficult it is to wade through the details of European soccer, it was really nice of these billionaires to set up this perfect contrast between oligarchic communism and oligarchic anarchy and show how they ultimately have the same result, which is a game completely divorced from what the fans want. In the NFL, we have communism. In the Premier League, we have anarchy. And sometimes they're very different in that there's actually competition within the league in the NFL and there's not in the Premier League. Although maybe there will be if there just are more billionaires. Maybe the Premier League is just going to end up looking like the NFL. 
I think that's what's going to happen. Anarchy leads to oligarchy. Communism leads to oligarchy. The only solution to this, as far as I can tell, is Kropotkinian and narco-communism in which football becomes a grassroots sport again and the fans actually take control, which is how we get to the Super League. Most of the biggest clubs in Europe, if you don't know this story, and I don't think you would unless you follow soccer news, tried to create this new thing. It was basically the NFL for European football. No more promotion, no more relegation, lots of sharings of funds within the cartel, but no sharing outside the cartel, and no one else is welcome in. And it took me a while to figure out why this happened. This is more of that complex stuff that I'm not sure I'm going to explain well enough. I'm sorry, email me follow-up questions if I don't quite get this idea across. But reading excellent journalists like Brian Phillips and thinking about it, I figured it out. This failed this time because the fans got mad at them. But it will happen eventually. And the reason why it has to happen is that the billionaires who own teams like Manchester United and Arsenal and Liverpool either can't or won't compete with the super billionaires who own Manchester City, Chelsea, and Newcastle now. You see, Manchester City and Chelsea were in the Super League, but apparently they didn't really want to be. Why would they be in the Super League? They currently have no real competition, and they don't have to share any of the money. They just joined the league because they didn't want to get left out. I mean, they didn't want to get left out because all the other Premier League teams were doing it. But there's actually another Petro club, Paris Saint-Germain, which is owned by the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Club, different from the Emirates and the Saudis but also not that different in terms of its role in European soccer. Why didn't PSG join the club? Well, the point of the club, the point of the NFL, remember, is that someone with only $200 million can buy in, not spend any of their own money, and eventually make $2 billion. Well, the Qataris have $300 billion. What would they do with $2 billion? They want no part of this. The point of the Super League is that the billionaires who own Arsenal and Liverpool don't have to worry about the sovereign wealth funds anymore. That's all this was about. Who's going to run global soccer? American billionaires or the even super richer Petro states? Are these our only two options? The NFL and the Super League in which billionaires do lots of sharing with one another and regular fans lose? Or the Premier League, in which billionaires and super billionaires compete with one another and regular fans lose. I don't think these are the only two options. Hence this title, Anarchism is the Bundesliga. None of the German clubs joined into this ridiculous Super League. None of the German clubs are owned by a petro-billionaire. In fact, none of the German clubs are owned by a billionaire at all. And all of a sudden, after this Super League fiasco, people were looking at the Bundesliga. Here's uh, the journalist Raphael Honigstein writing for The Athletic. Going against your supporters' express wishes is a lot more difficult in Germany due to the democratic ownership structure. All bar a handful of professional clubs are majority controlled by their members who vote in the chairman and supervisory board. Bayern president Herbert Heiner could, in theory, be thrown out of office at the next AGM if the members don't agree with the way the club is run. Even though such grassroots revolts are extremely rare, 
the member's involvement creates a real sense of accountability strengthened by the physical proximity between supporters and leaders. The men in charge of football in Germany's top division live in or near the cities of their clubs, readily exposed to everyday people and their emotions. Neither Dortmund CEO Hans-Joachim Watzke, a conservative politician and successful businessman, nor Heiner Rumniga or Ule Hernes would want to run a gauntlet in restaurants or the media, getting blamed for ruining the existing football ecosystem and exacting potentially fatal damage to their domestic peers in pursuit of extra income. Quote, none of these guys could have shown their face again if they'd agreed to a Super League. Somebody in a position of power at one of the Bundesliga's biggest clubs contends. Okay, that's the end of the Honigstein quote. Look at this, look at this. This is, I would say, anarcho-communism, precisely as Kropotkin was calling for, especially if you listened to the supply chain episode. Or you can call it Dewey and democracy or cooperative ownership. It doesn't matter what you call it. The point is what it is. The fans own the clubs. The people who run the clubs live in the local communities, and the fans can kick them out. The Bundesliga is a confederation of localities working together to create a league. I mean, paging Kropotkin. The NFL is a top-down corporate structure. The Premier League is a bunch of individual billionaires. Only the Bundesliga is run the way Kropotkin would design a soccer league. And that's why the Bundesliga didn't join the Super League and maybe even stopped the Super League. Can't have a Super League without Bayern, and Bayern can't join the Super League, and Bayern can't be bought by a petrobillionaire because of this model, the German model, also called the 50 plus one model. 50% plus one share, so 50.001, which is to say voting control of every German team has to be owned by the fans. Well, okay, there's a couple of grandfather exceptions to this 50 plus one model, but almost all of the German teams have that 50 plus one model. And now the British government is considering imposing the 50 plus one model, which would be an example of anarchistic organizing, taking power back from the billionaires. The Germans have this model that prevents this kind of thing from happening. But I've got one more twist before I introduce my guest and share our conversation with you. It could be that Bayern stopped the Super League by not joining, but the guy in charge of Bayern, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, actually wants to get rid of the German model. Here's an article about it from ESPN.com written by a journalist Stefan Erzfeld. This is quoting from Rummenigge. It's evident that the league, especially the DFL with its members, is torn. Erzfeld writes that there was a plan to get rid of the German model. It was started by Bayern, but then a group of teams got together and stopped them. And Rummenigge was not happy. It causes disconcertment that a second league club, which as far as I know, has never played in a European competition, not only takes a prominent, but also a dominating position with the vote and this is the vote that kept the German model, this was four years ago. With the vote, the branch on which competitiveness sits has been weakened by a mediocre team from the second division. Don't forget this. He added that the Bundesliga, quote, has always been very generous, close quote, in his treatment of second-tier clubs, but warned, I don't know whether this will still be the case in the future. 
Ooh, man, if you're, if you're trying to figure out who the villain is in the modern world, sometimes it can be hard, but if the guy just goes on and makes like mafia style threats from a bad 80s action movie, <laughs> it's pretty easy to tell who the villain is here. I don't know if we will be very generous in the future. I can just visualize um, this guy fighting Steven Seagal. So, Bayern stopped the Super League, but if it had been up to Bayern, the German model would have been destroyed. Perhaps the Super League would have happened. So who actually stopped the Super League? Well, it must be this second league club, this mediocre team from the second Bundesliga that for some ridiculous reason organized all of German grassroots football against the billionaires. So who is this villainous, dominating, all-powerful controller of world soccer, but also mediocre and unimportant team, that would be the Pirate Punk Club FC St. Pauli of Hamburg. And it just so happens, this week I've got a member of the Fon Laden, a fan organization, Julian here, to talk to me about what it means to be a supporter of St. Pauli, the bastion of grassroots football in the Bundesliga. Okay, now we're now we're going. Okay, um, my name is Julian and I work for Fanladen St. Pauli since nearly three years. Maybe a few short words to Fanladen as an institution. Um, so we do basically two kinds of things. Um, our main topic is to do social work with young football fans. So we have a group for minor football fans and organize, organize travels to football games without alcohol and cigarettes. Um, they can meet once a week and talk to each other. We talk to them about topics in the St. Pauli cosmos that actually are discussed, um, whatever it is. So topics like violence, gender roles, uh, and everything else. But um, we do a lot of fun things with them also. So like yesterday, um, we have been to, uh, yeah, we have been um, to an ice ground and sliding on it. <laughs> um, we have a football project for young people from St. Pauli where they can attend without paying money and can play football. So it's not in a club, but it's um, way more low key. So they don't have the duty to attend, but they can come whenever they want. Um, and we are talking to all the groups and fan clubs at FC St. Pauli yeah, about the topics they the topics they actually have. Um, we support them if there's trouble with police or with institutions. Uh, we do mediation if there's a conflict with uh, the club itself like with the board members or with the security issues the club has. Um, and besides that, we do a lot of ticketing for fan clubs, for home games and for away games. Uh, so that yeah, nearly every fan club at FC St. Pauli has to get in touch with Fanladen at, at one of these points. 
Oh, that's that's wonderful to hear, Julian. I I mentioned to you I did an interview with Fabian Fritz. That's actually going to air after after this interview. But um, Fabian uh, he works on this American philosopher John Dewey, who is also one that I work on on this idea of Dewey and democracy, which is that democracy is not it doesn't mean voting, it doesn't mean institutions, it doesn't mean rules and laws. It means people coming together, the whole community working to make the community what they want it to be, and that can be with or without institutional structures. It sounds to me what you're describing with the Fahnmatten is what Fabian would call Deweyan democracy. You're interacting with all these institutions, but but you're doing it with, with the spirit of inclusion and democracy. Does that, have I got that right? Yes, I think that basically that's right. So it's, it's not only Fanladen, but I think it's, um, it's one of the core elements of St. Pauli at all. Um, that it's a lot about participation. Uh, I think we will get to that if we talk about um, 50 plus one later. Um, so how participation can work in a football club, um, which has to play in a capitalist uh, football surrounding um, and can, can't abolish it uh, by itself. Yes, of course. So um, the episode that this interview will air in or after I explained the, the, the American model for football, the NFL model, the, the European model for football, and then the Super League, which is an attempt to take the NFL model and stick it on top of the, the pyramid. Um, but I was uh, in, in Europe, I was hoping you could explain the, the, the 50 plus one model of which I, it seems to me that San Pauli is the best example of, but of course is not the only example because 50 plus one is a major part of uh, German football. Mm -hmm. Maybe first of all, the NFL model is, isn't all bad, I think. Um, because in Germany, actually, we have a situation where Bayern Munich became champion for, I think, 10 or 11 times in a row. Um, so there's nearly no sportive competition in the IR ranking. Mm -hmm. um, I think that differs in the US. Um, Yes, so that's actually one of the things that the NFL produces is competition on the field, but corporate uh, stasis outside of outside of the field. And you can understand why people would would like a model that would prevent Bayern from being so dominant, but not at the cost of handing football to the billionaires. Yes, yes, that, that's that's an important point. That's an important point of, um, that we don't want to hand football out to the billionaires. Um, and 50 plus one, plus one. Um, so I think I have to start with the model we call EV, which is in German Eingetragener Verein. Um, and in English, I cannot fully translate it. So it's something like a corporate or collective association mm. or corporation. Um, so it's a legal person which means it can have a bank account, it can go to court, it can run a business. Um, but at the end of the day, um, an EFO um, has to work mainly for the common good. Mm. That's what uh, the, the tax law in Germany says. And so collective associations like that um, have some privileges um, in taxes. Yes, there there are there are various things in the in the American legal system. There's B corps, there's co-ops, there's nonprofits that I think do that have some characteristics of this. But I would also say there's nothing that 
that does precisely what you are what you are talking about, at least in the American legal system. And yeah, what it means is, um, so a club in Germany has to be run in a democratic way. Mm -hmm. So it differs from club to club. Um, so every club has a constitution that rules uh, how the club has to be run. Um, and the grade of participation in that constitution differs from club to club. So I think St. Pauli has a quite high status for participation. Um, and so we have a club member, club member meeting at least once a year where the members um, yeah, have, have to vote, basically have to vote about uh, the club's fate for the coming year and can have decisions that are binding for the uh, club's board and chair. Um, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So ba basically the club the members are the, are the bosses in some way. Um, the daily work in the club is mainly do, done by professionals. Mm -hmm. So the single member doesn't have a lot of, yeah, doesn't have a lot of participation what the daily work does. Uh, I think that's necessary because otherwise it would be impossible to run a club that's also a corporation um, of a middle size. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense to me. So that was my understanding of the 50 plus one model. And you, I mean, in some senses, many public companies in the United States are, are run this way and that just people, you often institutional investors, but the shareholders own a controlling interest in the corporation and they can't, they are the bosses, they can fire the CEO, for example. But not only do they have no day-to-day uh, -day running of the club, it also, that, that also never happens. There is no sense of democracy in these corporations, even though technically the, the, the shareholders have the ability to um, overturn decisions made by the board and the CEO. And my understanding is that's how most of the German clubs work as, as well, that they are maybe owned 50 plus one, but there's not the kind of democratic participation that I hear about with some Pauli, but you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, 50 plus eins goes a little beyond that. Um, so it means every club has to be, uh, nearly every club. So there are three exceptions, three or four, um, which are Leverkusen, which belongs to the Bayer company, Wolfsburg, which belongs to the Volkswagen company, and Hoffenheim and Leipzig, who don't belong to um, to company owners, but are very much run by them. Um, Fifty plus one means, um, and at, at that point it gets a little complicated. So many many German clubs have outsourced their professional soccer department mm. um, because you can't tell anyone reasonable um, professional soccer in Germany is non-profit. <laughs> and so they, they, they turned it in, into some kind of another corporation like, um, yeah, like Inc or acting like Inc or, or like share, shareholders society. Um, and 50 plus one means uh, the club, which is dominated by the members, have to own 50 shares, P 
plus, plus at least one vote um, of the football corporation. So, and St. Pauli, that's some kind of special, um, has not outsourced the football department, but it's part of the club as it's the department for handball or rugby or chess. Okay, so you're, what you're telling me is um, under the 50 plus one model, there, there is still in some way an institutional control over the club with the, with the members, but by creating this separate institution, they've created one more bit of distance that the, that the fans cannot exert their influence over in the same way. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, that, that, that's, that's correctly. So we saw it like two weeks ago at the members meeting of Bayern Munich, um, where some proposals were, weren't left on the agenda, like um, stop sponsoring with Qatar. Mm. So the bosses said, okay, it does not belong to the agenda because sponsoring is the job of the football corporation. The court in Munich uh, saw it like the Bayern bosses. <laughs> and so it wasn't possible for the fans to stop the sponsoring with Qatar. Yes, I think, again, I think this takes me back to what I was talking about with Fabian and, and Dewey and democracy. So on paper, there is, there is democracy at, at Bayern, but democracy is not practiced and the institutions have found a way to avoid the, the, the democratic structure. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm hearing, at least. Yes, I think that's a good summary. Yeah. Mm, and there, there are some few clubs um, who have not outsourced the football, the football department and St. Pauli is one of them. I just, I'm not quite sure about that, but I think Mainz and Schalke and Freiburg also have not outsourced it, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure if all of them are correct. So do you think, yeah, you. do you think it's part of St. Pauli's history, at least since the eighties of the, of the left-wing engagement that has made it one of these exceptions? That, that's my sense, but I want to hear what you think. Um, yes, that's defi definitely part of St. Pauli's so historic development. Um, may, maybe in the future there will be a point where we will also have to outsource our football department because as, as I mentioned before, it's not reasonable to tell the, uh, to tell financial institutions, hey, our football players play for common good. Right. Oh, well, I mean, I would, I would say, Julian, I, I think that's, I think it's quite reasonable to say that football players play uh, for the, for the common good, but you, you can't, as you and I discussed in an email earlier, it's very hard to do that as a, as an island. So um, I had a German academic named Andreas Wittel, who, whose work is on the commons and working for the common good. Uh, I interviewed him. I haven't released that episode yet. And he was very pessimistic about all of these institutions that do work for the common good because within he thinks within the capitalist structure, you cannot do it. The structure has to change before something like the way St. Pauli is run or the 50 plus one model or Dewey and democracy can really be uh, achieved. I would like to hear that we can change the structure through institutions like St. Pauli, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily sound like what you are saying either if I'm understanding you correctly. No, it's 
So German philosopher Adorno said um, there is no right life uh, in the wrong society. Um, uh, yes, well, I should say Anders Witter works on Habermas and Adorno as well. So yes, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, Julian. Well, I, I think he was right, um, but at least we can do something. And if we want a transformation, it has to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think a democratic football club is one of the smallest institutions that a single person can experience um, to participate in and to experience the change um, the, individ the individual per person can, can do. And I think that, that that's one of the most important uh, things about a democratic football club, the ex experience of your own, yeah, the consciousness of your own as the one um, who does it. Oh, that is... That is that is wonderful to hear, and I must say it absolutely gladdens my heart to see Zampali um, first in the in the Zweite Bundesliga with a chance to um, with a chance to go up to the Bundesliga, and soon I'm, I'm going to release this episode to coincide with the Dortmund game in the in the cup because I just think that if people see a the the the, the Bundesliga model, the fifty plus one model working, and in particular the which is the most or one of the most democratic versions of that model working, succeeding on the field, especially for the people in Hamburg who get to be a part of it, then people can't, people can't say anymore, oh, this, this doesn't work in a capitalist society. But of course you run the risk if you're in the Bundesliga, there's a lot more money. Um, the Sampali will need to be purchasing a different class of player and be just in a different realm of uh, capitalism, and I can understand enormously the the temptation to streamline and and corporatize. Does that does that seem like a legitimate concern to you? As someone who's only been following Sankpali for about a year, uh, it, it'll be interesting for me to to experience this if Sankpali goes up to the Erste Bundesliga. No, so I, I have a lot of hope um, that's connected to promotion to the Bundesliga, um, because. The, Erste Bundesliga and Zweite Bundesliga have some kind of a collective model for TV money. So it's not collective in a good way. <laughs> it always means Bayern Munich gets the most. And, um, the clubs in the second Bundesliga do get a lot less. Um, but promotion to the first Bundesliga um, would mean a lot of money more that comes in for FC St. Pauli. And it would mean a lot of money more that comes in over at least five years, even if we relegate them. Um, so it would be financial a great thing for the club. And I hope it would make some things possible in the club also, besides buying new players. <laughs> so I, I think I think the, play, the players we have, um, a lot of them are good enough to play in Bundesliga. Um, so we won't have to buy 22 new players. Um, and I hope um, promotion will also make things possible. Like, so we have to rebuild the wheelchair area in the stadium. There have to be things, things to be done on a structural level and a promotion to the Bundesliga um, would be a possibility to do that things because there's money. Um, so maybe we will be able to have a new stadium for our second team 
um, things, things like that that are important for the structures of the club. Um, and maybe it's a possibility uh, to finance them about a promotion to Bundesliga. And so besides that, um, I'm curious to play in other stadiums again than over the last 10 years. This is fascinating, uh, Julian, because what you what you are describing is is taking the the money earned from competitive success and investing it into um, things that relate to accessibility, like the wheelchair area, and also things that distribute the money across the club and support the club, which I think is very different. When when the uh, most of us in America, if we do follow. Uh, a European football team. It is. It is in the English Premier League, and the narrative in that situation, when the money comes in, is always about buying players and pursuing staying up, with the idea that if you can stay up, you can become this whole new class of club. You can you can join the wealthy uh, elites of European football, and you have to spend, spend, spend desperately in order to reach that top 1%. You're describing something entirely different from what I was uh, imagining. And I have to say, it's quite, um, it's quite moving to me to hear that that, that, that that could be the perspective. It's not one I'm familiar with in, in European football. So I, I think even the English clubs are two different kinds of clubs. So there's clubs like Manchester United, where um, Glazer, who invested in the club, um, wants to earn money for himself. Yes. And, and there are the clubs bought by Saudi or Qatari shakes um, who are more or less a toy. Um, <laughs> where, where, spend, where spending is done for spending. Um, and com compared to that, um, the 50 plus one model in Germany at all um, will get to its limits. It, it won't be possible to compete with these clubs for the next 15 years, not only for St. Pauli, I think even Bayern Munich and Dortmund will get to their limits then. Okay, um, so now we're back to Adorno. There's, there is no, there is no right uh, football association in a, in a wrong football corporate structure. So you're, you're suggesting that if the 50 plus one model and, and the UK is talking about adapting the 50 plus one model, although I have a feeling that will not happen, but uh, with the 50 plus one model, could, I would say, could work, could work at every football club in the world, but not if it's competing against teams owned by American billionaires and uh, petroleum super billionaires. Does that sound right to you? Yes. So personally, I hope the European Parliament at some point will say, oh, 50 plus one is obliging for yeah. every football club in, in Europe. I know they won't do. And so I think uh, the perspective for yeah, German football sounds a little silly, um, but what for football in Germany and for 50 plus one in Germany will be to say, okay, we give a fuck on what Bayern München and Dortmund um, <laughs> want to win on an international level um, and save 50 plus one on a yeah, na national scale also sounds a, bit, sounds a little bit like um, not, not looking across the borders. Um, but that's the way football is organized, actually. And so what, what I really hope is that the majority of German clubs will say, okay, Champions League and winning the Champions League um, is not our topic and we will never do it. Um, and so we will act in our own interest 
uh, and stop acting in the interest of Bayern Munich and Dortmund. Yes. Oh, that is that is wonderful. That is wonderful to hear that that idea. And I have to say, so if you're listening to this podcast and you've been watching European football, but you haven't been watching the Bundesliga, the Bundesliga is the most enjoyable football to watch in Europe. And I, I don't know exactly what I mean, I'm speaking subjectively, um, Julian, but also there have been all sorts of articles recently now that all the Bundesliga games are on TV where Americans have been saying, wait a second, you know, this, this doesn't have as many famous names. You can't watch Neymar or Cristiano Ronaldo or Zlatan in the Bundesliga, but actually each game is more enjoyable to watch. And now that I have access to the French league, the English league, the Spanish league, and the German league, if there's just a, a, a few games on, I always pick the Bundesliga game. It is the best soccer. And so the idea that that would be destroyed, this I mean, because it would be destroyed, I think, if the, if the 50 plus one model goes away and Bayern and Dortmund become even more like Real and Barcelona. The idea that that would be destroyed on behalf of Bayern and Dortmund, that that terrifies me. And I certainly like the idea that the the other leagues should become more like the Bundesliga. It's a it's a more enjoyable experience. The fear is it's just not going to play as well in South America, in Africa, in Asia. But as long as you as long as you over there in Germany can can be strong and protect your own institutions and say, you know, we don't care whether the people in Rio are watching us or not. We are we are here for us and our communities. That seems fine to me. Yeah. So, so I, I, I hope it will be possible to uh, defend 50 plus one. So actually it's discussed because of Corona and a lot of clubs are in a financial mm. financial bad situation. I think, oh, maybe we can solve it if we sell ourselves to some kind of an investor. Um, I, at, at least it would mean a lot of alienation between fans and clubs added in other leagues. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it would mean fans go to other sports or fan culture will even become a little more violent because people can't participate in their club. So they participate in other things like fighting on the streets. Mm. Um, that's at least what I think is possible. Um, and not every German fanzine is doing things for their community. So we have um, openly right-wing fanzines in Germany and usually they defend 50 plus one too, not, not because of participation, but because of words like tradition and origin. Right. Right, that makes that makes sense. There's that there's that 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 conservative element as well. Um, oh, I lost my oh, I was you know uh, th there's an American writer, um, American sports writer named Brian Phillips, and and the way he summed up the Super League was is is the is the sport going to be played for the fans and the communities of which they are a part of, or is it going to be a played for a global television audience it seems to me that that really that that really is the question and the sport itself the product on the field the game of football could certainly in endure becoming a um a, a an american style world television uh product although i think it would probably be worse for most teams but it would exist the thing that makes the sport invaluable 
would would be lost. And I think if we don't if we don't defend that, then we will have lost one, one of the great traditions and uh, sources of belonging and community in the world, which football has been as long as there has been football. Yes, I agree. So, um, so you you asked um, how we balance our left wing values uh, with the increasing amount of money in soccer. Yes, um, th that's an interesting point um, because um, so St. Pauli as a brand is in some kind of way left wing, um, and so I can say it in an English speaking podcast because. Um, Probably no one will hear it in Germany. Um, so I, I'm a little bit pissed off about that um, because I think the marketing is, oh, we are the left-wing club and we are against homophobia, ETC, um, is a little, uh, little, little bit of selling out those values. So if you bring them to the market, um, you make them compatible, also you make them fit into the mar market society. Um, that's why, why I'm not, uh, I'm not fully a fan of this talking about left-wing values at St. Pauli all the time. I think it's more about living them from the fan scene, um, than selling them in the fan shop. Uh, that, Julian, that's, that's what, that's why I wanted, that's why I wanted to talk to you because one of this, this is a concern that I've had as a fan from afar, this has been a concern that I've had and I am much more interested in democratic participation in Sao Paulo than I am in a t-shirt that says no football for fascists. Even though I like the idea of a t-shirt that says no football for fascists. Um, I certainly on this podcast have spoken against a lot of these slogans. So one that's very popular right now in America is this idea of diversity. And I say that, you know, there's nothing I love more than diversity, but I really hate diversity as a corporate value that is that is packaged and shouted and it's tracked with metrics and it actually ends up eliminating the true diversity of the human experience. And that's a concern that at least from afar, I, I, I had about Sao Paulo and I'm, I'm very happy to hear that you share it in terms that, I, that I've read the situation right, but I'm unhappy about that, that, that possibility that it will become a left-wing brand as opposed to a left-wing club. Yes, so, so in some, some kinds of understanding, diversity may mean to um, share the exploitation equal and not really equal rights. Mm. So I think that's a danger. Um, there, there's always a danger to have it turned into some kind of a neoliberal ter term. Absolutely. Um, that's what diversity has become in America is, is, is a neoliberal corporate value that can be tracked and turned into money. And so what I'm kind uh, quite glad of is uh, at our last members uh, meeting in December, um, the members decided the club has to run a collective treaty for work. So I, I don't even know if there's something like that in the US. It means it's a treaty for a whole branch of business, um, which is, yeah, which is not, um, not traded out by the single worker, but by, by a trade union. Ah. And so the trade union is the part, partner of the employee of the employee and um, employer um, in the treaty, which basically means um, 
strengthens the rights of workers. Um, and the members meeting told the club, okay, you have to run a collective treaty with the um, trade union VADI, which is for the uh, union of Dienstleistung. Um, yeah, we, we, an important <laughs> union in Germany. Yeah, fantastic. There's there are um, some traditions of collective bargaining like that, where the union is is at the table in America, but they're all they are almost they are almost all gone. They're 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 legacies, and they are and they are disappearing. Um, and like the old auto uh, companies in America have now they've created two tiers. The newer employees are not part of that collective bargaining and so when when enough employees retire it'll just it'll just disappear and i think you're right um that that sort of bargaining and unionization through democratic processes is the place that we get the real uh expression of these left-wing values of of community as as opposed to the the neoliberal version of them that's that's wonderful to hear yeah but, but it shows that fc st pauli as a company or as a brand um is all also interested uh, to exploit surplus value from their own employees, um, even if there's a lot of diversity and we are the other club stuff and fan shop are on the homepage. Yeah, well, so, you would you would be crazy not to try and exploit uh, your worker in a system that that rewards the exploitation of the worker as the foundation of of of, of economics and without a without a pressure like the club. The, the the fan scene of of course it would it would just trend that way naturally that's true so i don't i don't have a i don't have bad blood for the board or chair um that that's the way they want it it's it's the job they have yes and it's um it's some some kind of the dialectic the club moves in that we have to run it as a successful company and we want to run it um according to values we have and um, who which come from the fan scene. Um, and so, but it, it's, it's interesting how it is um, bargained out between the chair and the members. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I love, I love the idea of, of, of dialectic, the, the thesis of capitalism and the, and the antithesis of the fan community. And the result is a, is a synthesis that hopefully puts a puts a great team on the pitch and remains true to the identity of of the club. It's ne it's never going to be easy to maintain that, especially in the Erste Bundesliga. But I'm so thrilled that you guys are out there trying. That's that's wonderful, Julian. Yeah, but but that's a good summary. So we try to be uh, Caesars and anti Caesars at one, um, and sometimes it's possible, and sometimes it's uh, yeah, like a spagat. I don't know. Do you say spagat in English? If you spread your legs like, like a ballot? I don't know. I don't. I don't know this one. I have to look at what. Like a split? Yeah, probably. Yeah, like like a split. Okay. Yeah. So we're so you're trying you're trying to keep your legs together, <laughs> the 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 thesis and the antithesis wa walking together. Well, from. From from my vantage point over here across the Atlantic, I haven't found anyone else doing it uh, as well as Lance Pauli, and that's why that's why I'm wearing the jersey and and supporting the club. In fact, we have a game today, I believe, as we are as we are recording this. 
Yes, um, we, we we have a game today, um, and I have to get the next train to Kiel also. <laughs> well, um, thank you, thank you so much for joining me, Julian. This is wonderful. Is there is there anything else you would like to add or or, or share with the listeners? Um, yes, if there are any American St. Pauli fans listening, hello to you all, um, especially to the New York fan club, um, who I think do a great work in keeping up fan club life in New York. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm all the way down in North Carolina, so I'm a long, a long way from there, but I would, I would love to watch a game with them, and I hope someday to, to make it to Hamburg uh, and, and watch a game with you guys there. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Julian. This has been such a pleasure. Okay, so uh, yeah, goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. Thank you so much to Julian. I hope you enjoyed all of this. I certainly enjoyed getting to know Julian and learning more about the democratic processes of Tsang Pauli. I actually have another interview with the man I discussed with Julian, Fabian Fritz, coming up in a couple of weeks, and I will have that come out the week before Tsang Pauli plays Dortmund. So if you're interested in the little team that is playing the German giant on January 18th, you can listen to my interview with Fabian Fritz before that. Questions, comments, as always, are welcome and indeed desired at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, I need your support. I don't run ads. I don't have a paywall. But without more financial support, the podcast cannot continue indefinitely. So if you can go to everydayanarchism.com and make a financial pledge, you will keep the podcast alive. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.